This episode is brought to you in part by Harvest House Publishers and the new book, The Good Gift of Weakness. Discover how human weakness not only allows God's strength to shine, but it was all by His design. The Good Gift of Weakness is now available wherever books are sold. This episode is brought to you in part by B&H Publishing Group. Sam Albury's new kids' book, God's Go-Togethers, provides a helpful foundation for explaining why God made men and women as a special pair to complement each other in marriage and beyond. Learn more at godsgotogethers.com. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and we're continuing our coverage of the Israel-Hamas war. One of the things I often say to people who've never been to Israel is, you can't really overstate how weird this place is. It's weird because it's so potent, so loaded with meaning. And yet, it's also kind of a tourist trap. It's a nation with deep divisions and tensions, and it's living under constant threat from its neighbors. And yet, some of the most joyful, flourishing people you'll ever meet. So how did this war-torn, contested, terrorized patch of land become one of the happiest, most prosperous? And what, if anything, might it teach those of us who are living with rising rates of deaths of despair and a staggering amount of loneliness? How might Israel's Jewish identity shine some light on those who want to build communities of meaning, communities with a strong sense of identity and belonging, like us in the church? Well, that story is the subject of Dan Senor's new book, which he co-wrote with Saul Singer. It's called The Genius of Israel, The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World. The book was written long before 10-7, but I'd almost say it's a must-read for people who want to understand what's happening in Israel right now. How a nation that was just a few weeks ago on the brink of tearing itself apart because of its own political divisions is now more united than ever. I sat down with Dan in New York on Monday, November 13th, to talk about his book. All right, Dan Senor, welcome back to The Bulletin. Great to be with you. I'm a fan of the podcast. When we first talked, October 10th. Right. Um, it's been a heck of a month. How, how are things going? On October 10th, when we last spoke, I didn't know as much. Yeah. Now I know much more both about what happened, and I also know a lot more about friends that have been affected. Uh, you know, I have these friends who are involved with the show Fauda, this television show. Yeah. Close friends of mine. So one of the guys who was worked on the production team was killed in a. Uh, mm. He's a reservist. He was called up. He he was f- fighting in Gaza and he was killed. Uh, so I spoke to Avi Sakharov today, who's one of the creators of Fauda, who was on his way home from the funeral. You know, so all that settling in. So that's that's the hard part. Uh, the I'm always floored by the sense of resolve and resiliency of Israelis. That's a big part of what our book is about. And we're seeing that too, and that's actually quite inspiring, watching the Israeli society come back, societal resilience. So that's moving. And at the same time, my Israeli friends, when I try to comfort them, given what they've been going through, their reaction is, we'll be okay. How are you? Mm. They say to me, living Mm -hmm. here in New York, because they're watching from afar the craziness over here. Yeah, man. Well, it's in the midst of it, one of the fascinating things is to watch 
Israel come together the way that it has over the course of the last year. These there's been a tremendous amount of turmoil around uh, judicial reform inside Israel, the country tearing itself apart, people saying, "Are we on our way to civil war?" All of that, and it was like October seventh happens and a switch flips. There was a story you told the other day that I think our listeners would be really interested in. Yeah. So basically, through much of 2023, there were two organizations that are at the center of the anti-government protests. Anti-government meaning the government was pushing judicial reform and these protesters were against it. So it was an organization called Brothers in Arms, which was an organization mostly of combat reservists, different military reservists who were against the reforms. And then there was the high-tech community, mostly in Tel Aviv, that were largely secular, uh, largely kind of internationalist in outlook, had a lot of deep connections around the world through the the, the thriving Israeli tech community's integration in the global tech community. And they – and those two groups built a lot of the uh, anti-government judicial – you know, anti-government protest movement. And they were the ones organizing the rallies. And they, it, it was an elaborate effort, turning out 100, 150, 200, 250,000 people every Saturday night mm. for nine months was an elaborate project. In a country of what, 11 million people? Nine and a half. Nine point nine, nine three million. So okay. it's a big, it's a yeah. big project, and uh, and organizing the media around it, and the logistics, and the, it's a lot. So they built a huge operation, and so they built all this infrastructure. It, it was like a campaign organization uh, to to make this happen, and then October seventh happens. And the leaders of these two groups get together the morning of October 7th and they're like, okay, that's it. We got to take this whole infrastructure that we've built to torment the government over the last nine months and now we got to lock arms with the government Mm. and put it to work because there are going to be so many needs on the civilian side to deal with this moment. And they met and by that afternoon they had thousands of their volunteers ready to go, said, what do we need to do? We will Mm -hmm. do anything. They reached out to the Ministry of Defense. So this government that they had been at war with in a cold civil war with, sure. they now reached out and said, we're here to help. Let's lock arms. We've built this whole infrastructure to to go to war with you. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to go to war with you. Yeah. And they're going to go to war at you, but go to right. war with you like, side by side. <clears throat> and, they, and there were so many needs that needed to be filled. For instance, uh, Israel called up, as you know now, it's in the press, 360,000 reservists, which is lo- it's huge. A country of 9.3 million people that's larger than the standing armies of the UK mm. and France combined. They uh, – and so overnight they call up all these reserves and they – and the turnout for the reserves was even higher than they had forecast, something like 150 percent turnout because yeah. they called up more people than they thought they'd need because mm-hmm. they didn't expect everyone to turn out. Everyone turned out and then some. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have the supply chain set up. They didn't have the resources necessary to support all these people. So this civilian infrastructure, this anti-government reform mm-hmm. program got together and they're like, let's go get the supplies, ceramic bulletproof vests, tourniquets, meals, food, phone chargers, um, like you name it, like whatever was needed. They just yeah. went and got it. They started organizing cargo planes that come in from – I spoke to the one, the founder of Waze. The founder of Waze, these guys are worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He was there on the tar- – Excuse me, on the tarmac, unloading cargo. I mean, they just everyone rolled up the sleeves. A bunch of these guys drove down to southern Israel to do farming because yeah. the farms had to be evacuated because that's a big agricultural community, and because those communities right. had to be evacuated because those are the communities that were attacked. All these people moved down south just to volunteer and do the farming to keep the farms from going dormant. Mm. 
Um, they set up the tech community within two days had used had developed an artificial intelligence capability to gather up all the video they could find of the hostage taking wow. and see if they could identify through facial recognition any of the people being taken hostage. They set up this capability faster than the government ever could. They set up a, a quasi kind of a bespoke eight Airbnb program mm. because about 200,000, two to 300 yeah. people were displaced from the south and the north. Amazing. So you, you now can literally go into this and say, you know, I need a, a room for one person. And someone in Jerusalem can say, oh, well, my son just got called up to the reserves, so his room is empty. Come on in. And yeah. so... I mean, I can go on and on and on with what they've been doing. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's 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 been extraordinary. And it really gets at the heart of what the book is about. You had a book a number of years ago, Startup Nation, looking at this remarkable economic development in in Israel, um, Israel becoming the what, Silicon Valley on the Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, this book sort of looks underneath all of that to to look at like what is the country itself what is the social life what is the social structure of the, the country itself i mean obviously you you couldn't have predicted october uh 7th by any means but what you do sort of predict in this book is that that underneath the political divisions underneath significant religious and social division in the country there are these threads that make the the country cohere um you know, some of it being Jewish identity, some of it being ideas about family, some of it being practices. What made you want to write this? What, what drew you to this? Was it watching the conflict in the country? That- no. What, what, drew, what drew us to this was um, realizing that there was real decline here in the United States, social decline. Hmm. People living atomized lives, high rates of loneliness— high rates of substance abuse leading to deaths of despair from substance abuse or, or suicide or both, um, a mental health crisis, a teen mental health crisis, a, mm. a term I never thought I would hear, and I say this as the father of teenagers, uh, the CDC issuing a report about a teen suicide epidemic in the United States mm-hmm. over the last 15, 10, 15 years record levels of teens t- taking their lives or trying to take their lives. This is unprecedented in American history. Yeah. Um, shrinking populations, a demography crisis, people having fewer and fewer children, population shrinking. And it's not just the United States. You see it all over the West. Some some countries are, are early warnings to what the U.S. could be, like Japan, which has a shrinking population, aging and right. shrinking because people are just – schools – I was just there in Japan a few months ago and I was just struck the number of announcements of schools closing. Mm. Israel can't open schools fast enough. Yeah. Japan schools are closing. Just to give you a stat we cite in the book, in Japan, these the last few years they sell – in Japan, they sell more adult diapers than they do baby diapers, Okay. I mean, if there's a, if there's an image that is chilling, yeah. And Europe is not far behind, and, and the United States is not far behind. So, and the U.S. is you know hovering below the replacement rate necessary to grow your population. And in every one of these metrics, Israel's the outlier. Hmm. So Israel doesn't have a demographic crisis; it has a demographic boom. It's way above the replacement rate. Mm-hmm. Israelis are having lots of children, and it's not just the ultra-Orthodox Jews that many people think. It's secular Jews living in Israel mm-hmm. are having three, four, five children. Is, Israel has broken the iron law of demography that says that as a country becomes – as an economy becomes more productive, it becomes less reproductive. Right. And Israel is a country that's becoming wealthier, and people are having more and more kids. 
Um, the life expectancy is high in Israel, higher than in most places. There are no, virtually no deaths of despair. There is no loneliness crisis. There, it has the lowest teen suicide rate in the OECD. Yeah. Um, I mean, I can go on and on and on and on. So mm -hmm. it's clear that societies in the West, especially the U.S., are in heading down a bad place, and in the U and, and in Israel, it's moving the opposite direction. And we want to understand why that was. Mm -hmm. And we want to see if there's anything the West could learn from that, mm -hmm. if there's any lessons the U.S. can pull from that. Yeah. And you talk early in the book about, you know, like the, the happiness surveys, um, you know, people generally looking at Scandinavia as like the happiest places on earth. Everybody sort of always knows that. Um, the lesser known thing is that Israel's right there in the top 10% on yeah. a pretty yeah. consistent now, basis. Yeah, now 2023 is number four. So if you had to boil it down, somebody says, okay, what are the three or four things that Israel's doing that, that, that makes it this kind of a outlier? I, I have two quotes in this book that I love because I think they summar, summarize the book better than anything. Um, the first quote we have in the book is by Sebastian Younger, who's not Jewish. He's written a little bit about Israel over the years, but not much. And he's a war correspondent, and he's covered, he spent time with troops in Afghanistan and all over the place. And he, he writes here, and we quote him, it's the opening quote of the book. He says, humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. Mm -hmm. What they mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary. Now, I was struck by that. If we weren't going to call this book The Genius of Israel, we probably would have called it Necessary Nation. Yeah. Because in Israel, I think not only is Israel necessary in the world, but is every Israeli feels necessary. Mm -hmm. They feel that they have a role. They ha they feel they have something to contribute. They have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Right. And feeling necessary is about as close a correlation you can find with happiness. Yeah. Because people think, oh, happiness, it's sort of like a slippery, like, what does happiness mean? It means, you know, that your, you know, standard of living is good, you have good quality of life, you, you, government services work well, you live with abundance, and et cetera, et cetera. That's not true. Mm -hmm. Happiness is about purpose, belonging, feeling you're part of something, yeah. feeling that your life has meaning. That's why Israel ranks so high in happiness, because Israelis feel necessary. Mm -hmm. The other quote is by a guy named Mika Goodman, who we, who we quote in the book extensively, who's a friend of mine who lives in Jerusalem, and he's a very serious public intellectual young guy. And he says, you know, Israel is a small country with a big story. Mm -hmm. What happens in Israel matters to the Jewish people. It matters to Christianity. It matters to the world. And it's a story of biblical proportions. It's a really big story. Yeah. Goes back 2,000 years and God willing, another 2,000 years and then some. And every issue in Israel is viewed through that lens, that it's a story that matters for history, for the future. It has a biblical dimension. The stakes are high. It's not just about quality of life. They're not, they're not debating tax reform in mm -hmm. Israel. They're debating issues that are about the essence of life. Mm. And every Israeli, back to Sebastian, feels that they're a part of it, that they can touch it, that they have a mm -hmm. role. And what Mika says is that means that they can touch history, that they're shaping history, that they're shaping the story. Yeah. And I, so I think that's a big reason why the, the combination of feeling like you, you're necessary, feeling like you have a role, and that it matters. Yeah. There's a story there that matters, that you're shaping, and a, and a history. And so that's a reason. Two, I think that the role of national public service is extremely important. Almost mm -hmm. as every Israeli 
serves yeah. in some kind of role in national compulsory service at formative years, 18, 19, 20, 21. And I think that gives them a connection to the national project. It's not all about them. It's mm-hmm. not about me. It's mm-hmm. about we. It's about us. It's about community. Yeah. And it connects them to other people in society who they otherwise wouldn't come into contact with. Secular yeah. Jews get to know religious Jews and vice versa. Right. People from affluent backgrounds get to know people from lower economic, socioeconomic backgrounds. Jews from roots in North Africa get to go you know Jews from Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just mixes everybody up. And so mm-hmm. it's very hard to see other citizens as the other, even when you disagree with them and argue with them. Yeah. And then the third factor... You said three, so I'm going to do three. I could do more. Yeah, but go ahead. Yeah. The third factor is um, the role of ritual in yeah. in Israel, in which ritual is not just an individual experience; it's a it's a collective yeah. experience. So, take the Shabbat, the Sabbath. Yeah. We have a chapter in the book called Thanksgiving Every Week, which is about how most of Israel basically shuts down on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, every Friday night. Whether you're religious or secular, it may vary in degree how you how you honor and celebrate the. Uh, what level of, of, of observance you have, but most Israeli Jews do something on Friday nights with family and friends, usually multi-generational. And when they do it, they know that the whole country is doing it too. And yeah. that's what we mean by Thanksgiving every week. Right. And then also the way they honor their fallen, the civil religion, the Memorial Day. Memorial Day in Israel is a real Memorial Day. The whole country shuts down. We open the book by telling, describing what Memorial Day like is in Israel, which if no. you haven't experienced it, I encourage all your listeners, it's worth, A, reading about in the book, but B, going to Israel and being there on Memorial Day. It's the most, it's one of the most moving experiences I've ever had in my life. A siren goes off across the country for two minutes. They do the same thing on Holocaust Remembrance Day. Siren goes off for two minutes, and the whole country stops what they're doing, and... And when you say stops what they're doing, they stop the trains, they stop the cars, they stop the restaurants. You look at a highway in Israel on Memorial Day when that siren goes off, every car just stops on the highway and everyone gets out of the cars and just stands there for Mm. two minutes in a moment of silence. Mm. People get out of restaurants, get out of classrooms, they just stand and and they absorb it. And they're all thinking about their loved ones and then the national experience. And and I'm always struck when Israelis come to the U.S., if they're here for our Memorial Day and they see signs or they see promotions for Memorial Memorial Day sales, yeah. <laughs> like as though it's a shopping weekend. Right. And they're like, isn't this to honor your fallen? Memorial Day in Israel is the day before Independence Day. Mm-hmm. So the two days are back to back. So it's a sense that the country goes through the pain of Memorial Day mm-hmm. and then they come out of it and go right into Independence Day to make clear to everyone that the country's independence and freedom is directly dependent yeah. on the fallen that we're remembering. And so I just think they've, they're just very good at having created all these rituals that bring the country together. It's something we talk about all the time on the bulletin. It's like a, we've had a joke that if you were going to have bulletin bingo, one of the place cards would be for Yuval Levine and, and talking, about, talking about the problems with our institutions, all these weakened institutions. And you know, in the church, it's, it's a huge issue and, and the need for reforms in certain parts of evangelicalism are a big regular topic of conversation. But what struck me so much in reading this is is looking at when we talk about what reforming institutions looks like, it's like go back to formative practices, you know. Like for the church, it's often like we got to go back to liturgical renewal. We've got to go back to um, um, thinking about the, you know, how do we address the issues of bowling alone and all that kind of stuff. Like so many of those so many of those sort of structural and societal issues that everyone in America is is dealing with. 
uh, including Christians and, and people, you know, whatever religious stripes, um, they they don't operate at the same level inside Israel because you have these cohesive cultural institutions, in a sense, these practice, these formative practices right. that are um, that are that are the baseline of community. That's yeah. Um, the there's a Goodman quote to that effect, too. What is it that he says? Communities don't create ritual. Rituals create community. Yeah. And I, I really, that has stuck with me because it's true. People say, oh, we're part of a community. We're part of a community. And then the, the, a bunch of people find some reason to get together. And then they're like, we got to come up with some reason to meet all the time. Or, mm-hmm. you know, as though, like, you need to find the ritual. And that's usually not a very durable community. The most durable communities are one that is produced by a ritual. So, mm-hmm. for instance... You know, going to synagogue in, in in the United States, you go to synagogue, for the people who go to synagogue, the relationships they have in synagogue on a Saturday morning or Friday night are probably the least instrumental relationships they have. They're mm-hmm. not people that they're curious about their career. They're not people they work with. They're not people they're competitive with. They're just together to pray once a week. That's the nature of their relationship. Yeah. That's all they really... And, and so the ritual, and then that creates a community, and that's the connection. Mm-hmm. And the and so, like I said, the the ritual creates the community. And I think Israel is a country of rituals that have created a national community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many evangelicals. So so you create this sort of 31 flavors of church, and every church is a little bit different. And you can go to church with people that are just like yourself, and and everything sort of, you know, everything sort of bifurcates in all of these different directions, but. The end product of that experiment 40 years later is loneliness, right. is that you don't know anybody um, because you do live in these narrow bandwidths and you don't you don't span generations because you don't go to church with anybody who's more than 10 years older or 10 years younger than you wow. and, and so on and so forth, right? That's fascinating. So there was a uh, – that, that's really interesting. So we write in the book about gibush, this Hebrew word gibush, which mm-hmm. is – which it, there's no obvious English word for it, but it's – it's basically living with putting the emphasis on the group, being part of the group, having bonding experiences with the group, with your mm-hmm. group of friends, with your group, your buddies from the army, with your whatever your kind of sub-community is. It's, it's intense experiences as a group. And there were some in the education community in, in Israel that were enthused about the whole personalized learning revolution mm-hmm. that is a big deal here, that everyone should be able to learn according to their own speed, and uh, mm-hmm. super bright kids should have, be on a fast track, and kids who are having challenges should be on a different track, and everyone is on their own, 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 you know, their own personalized track. So they were experimenting with Israel, and there was a revolt. There was a revolt among teachers, and there was a revolt among mm-hmm. parents who said, whoa, we're giving up the gibush. If mm-hmm. everyone's on a personalized track, they're not part mm-hmm. of it, this, and the education of being part of something... Yeah. Of gibush is as important as the substance of what they're learning. Of learning being invested in that other person who maybe is struggling, right? And yeah. learning together, and yeah. learning together, and 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 viewing the group's inva- advancement as important That's as your own. Yeah. And that and that mindset exists throughout the society. By the way, getting to the best mil- ar- units, so getting to the best army units is like getting to the best universities in the U.S. It's a big deal. If you get to the Air Force, you get to mm-hmm. the Unit eighty two hundred. Some of these elite units, tech units. They're like a fast track to making it in the tech community and the startup scene in Israel. Getting to those advanced units or, or uh, most elite units, look, you need individual skills. You need talent, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm. If you have talent but you can't work as part of a team, mm-hmm. 
you will not get uh, into that unit. Mm -hmm. And so, again, the incentive is I got to be able to work as a group to make it. And once you have that mindset and that incentive structure, it affects how the whole it affects how young people think about themselves. Because it's not just about my individual excellence. I've got to, yeah. you know, if I want to make it, I got to be able to work with other people. I got to be communal minded. Yeah. It, it's a whole different mindset. We wrote a piece. Saul and I wrote a piece, taking an excerpt from the book for the New York Post. It's gone like viral. This point about comparing how young people advance in the United States mm. versus how young people advance in Israel. And young people advance the United States by just thinking about themselves. Yeah, I I uh, I love the story you tell in in the book as well about um, there's a there's an elite unit that studies maps yeah. uh, in the IDF. Can you tell just a little bit about how you came across that story? What who that unit is? Yeah, so that unit is um, it's called Roim Rochok. It's a program called Roim Rochok, which means look into the future, and it's a it was a program set up, we tell the story of why it was set up and how it was set up, for young people with autism. The military tries, the the military is not, military service is not only an obligation, but in a sense it's a right. Mm -hmm. That everyone should have the right to serve in the military. It plays that much of an important role in Israeli society. Obviously, if you have certain disabilities and challenges, it's hard to serve in the army. But the IDF has gone out of its way to be as inclusive as possible and find ways for everybody to contribute in some way. And again, we tell the story of how it came about, so I don't want to get into all the details, but in short, yeah. they, they, they were looking for ways for young people with autism who otherwise couldn't serve in the Army to be able to serve in the Army, both because it's a pathway to them advancing and, and maybe living a life of some independence as they get older. And secondly, it, it is, gives them a ticket in Israeli society, like, that's how, mm-hmm. how, where you serve in the army, if you serve in the army, is a big right. part of the cachet of like kind of coming out of that age group, early 20s. Yeah. Connecting right, feeling part of, of it, it. Yeah. feeling part of it, feeling yeah. part of the experience, that even people with autism should feel part of the national experience. And, feel yeah. that, and they realized that, most importantly, people with autism had something to contribute. But yeah. they figured out that, that people with autism can do certain things that people who aren't on the spectrum could not do. Mm-hmm. And it gave Israel a strategic edge in terms of analyzing visual data, visual mm-hmm. intelligence. And I'll just say that this, and so they started integrating these these young people with autism and they've played such an important role that now they're in hot demand across different units <laughs> in the IDF. It's true, different commanders are, are trying yeah. to get them. Mm-hmm. And then big tech companies that mm-hmm. have operations in Israel like Microsoft and Intel have set up programs to onboard these people with autism once they come out of the army to come do the same kind of work at wow. these big tech companies. So we interviewed in the, for the book some of these people working at Intel yeah. and Microsoft. It's I will say it's incredibly moving. I mean, the, yeah. they, it, first of all, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And it's moving. Yeah. I've always been fascinated by Israel because it's – Israel is, Israel is not what I think 99% of Americans think it is. Mm-hmm. You go to this place and it's like you show up and, you know, half the people you see when you're there are tourists. Yeah. And, and so you, you get all the tour, you know, the tour buses and the Holy Land tours and all that. And that's, and that's one thing. And then you have like, you know, you, there, there are certain images that sort of are indelible of, of whether it's the Haredim or whether it's, you know, all these young people in uniform um, kind of everywhere. But then like, 
you walk into a restaurant in Tel Aviv and you could be in any global city all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, there's probably more kids, <laughs> right? Yeah, a lot more kids. But, but you could be in any global city. There, there's this sense of like the, the, the art scene, the culture scene, the film and television scene, which you write about in the book. Um, it, Israel is this fascinating, thriving place. And it's also, it's also a wildly diverse place. I think there's a lot for culture to learn from it's just a it's a weird it's a weird place it's 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 and i mean that in the best way i know yeah it's it's, paradoxical yeah it's it's a paradox because it's a place of incredible tension yeah and also incredible happiness Mm -hmm. so like just squaring that the tension of the 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 threats as we're seeing right now Mm -hmm. but we chronicle other threats throughout history they live with these threats and yet they live with meaning and happiness the, 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 it's a place of old and new, right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a place of, you know, uh, Mika Goodman has this great line where he says something which we quote. He says, you know, people used to just come to Israel to see the biblical story, yeah. right? To see the holy sites. That was basically, it was, it was a, it, people come to Israel to see history. And now with Startup Nation and the tech community there, they're also coming to see the future. Mm-hmm. How many places in the world are people coming to see the old and the new, seeing the past and the future? And so, and as you said, the diversity, over 70 nationalities there. So you have all these different cultures and all these nationalities mixed up into one. And um, it's, I mean, to me, it's the most interesting place in the world. Yeah, for sure. Well, Dan, thanks for making time for this. Thank it's you. good I to catch really, up with you. I appreciate it. All right. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced by Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Post-production by TJ Hester. Our art for this episode is by Rick Shooks. Music by Dan Phelps. And social media by Kate Lucky. Thanks for listening.